Lent, what we do, is Jesus, as Stephen was saying, is we follow Jesus to the cross. And we discover more and more about what it means to belong together to the crucified and risen one. And we reflect on our deep need for the great salvation that Christ purchased for us. And so as we reflect tonight on our deep need, we do so through, and what we've been doing at Liberty Fairmount is looking through the lens of forgiveness. What does it mean to practice that? What does it mean that God has, does that for us? Now, we struggle to forgive others because we fail to realize and live out of what God, what it costs God to actually forgive us. And here in the Gospel of Matthew that I just read to you, what we see is the resource. We actually see the one we need to transform our own hearts with both humility and boldness, empowering us and allowing us the freedom to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And so what I want to do is I want to look at tonight the cry of Jesus on the cross. And I want to see that if you're a Christian tonight that that cry of Jesus on the cross gives us a humility, both a humility and a joy together that makes forgiveness possible. You know, 46 of Matthew 27 says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when Christians become Christians, one of the things that happens for us is that we we often struggle to receive God's forgiveness accomplished because of the cross. At the beginning, sure. In the beginning of the relationship, we accept God's forgiveness in Christ. But then what happens? We won't be long before we live our lives in a way that reveals what our hearts do, which is to doubt his love for us. Our hearts doubt his love. And it shows up in myriad ways, the way we try to own our own, like we earn our self-worth. We earn our self-worth through our overwork or the way we continually beat ourselves up internally over our failures, or the way we fail to forgive because the reality of God's forgiveness is is really faint to us. And so we've lost track. We lost track of what God's love costs for us, or cost him for us, and we are really, what we're really worth in God's eyes. So in some important ways, the struggle with guilt... And this is a problem I want us to consider before we look at Jesus on the cross as the solution. The problem of our guilt is not a unique struggle to Christians. There's a sense of our guilt that remains in our culture, but it's really, it's really tough to nail down. It's really tough to locate. And it's really tough to deal with just through our modern culture's lens. Our modern culture has done everything to say we don't believe in God. We don't believe in heaven. We don't believe in hell. We don't believe in moral categories. And the question is this, has that helped? Has it helped? Uh, long ago, Franz Kafka wrote a book called The Trial. And John Updike, who was one of the only four writers to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction more than once, consider that. He wrote that Kafka epitomizes the modern mindset a sensation of anxiety and shame whose center cannot be located and therefore cannot be placed. In Kafka's book, The Trial, Joseph K. is a character. He's living a normal life, and on his 13th birthday, he's arrested, and he's indicted, and he's put under house arrest and interrogated and given hearing after hearing, but he never learns what he's accused of. 
And at first he thinks it's all a mistake and that he can easily clear it up. But as time goes on, he begins to look at his life and he realizes that there were bad things that he did and that might just be the reason for all of this. And so he begins to doubt himself, but he can't get to the bottom of it. Does he deserve to be arrested or not? Is he guilty or not? And in the end, what's disturbing about the story is that he never finds out. His jail warden brings him outside and executes him, and the story ends. Frustrating. Frustrating read. But Kafka knew that disbelieving moral categories in order to deal with our guilt hasn't helped. If anything, it actually makes it worse because our guilt now can't be eradicated. We can say, I don't believe in sin and I don't believe in guilt, and yet there's a voice in us that calls us cowards. There's a voice in us that calls us fools, makes us ashamed, makes us say we're not living up. There's something going on. What is it? Secular culture has no definitive answer. And when it comes to the cross of Christ, there are many people who understandably recoil from the idea of hell and of eternal judgment that Christians believe took place there. We've talked about that tonight. Stephen told us about it. Monica read about it. But there are ramifications that come from such a rejection. How will justice ever be done for all of the evil and corruption and violence that has happened in history? Justice will never be done if there is not a divine judgment day. And if there's no judgment day, what hope is there for our world? We hear it like this often. People choose to believe in God, a pure love who loves everybody no matter what. Jesus didn't have to die. He just loves everyone, they say. But what does that cost such a God? What does it cost such a God? That's the other serious implication of the rejection of God's wrath, of only having a God of love. It minimizes what Jesus has done for us. And so belief in God, who must punish sin, but who also loves us, gives us a sense of what it cost Jesus to love us. Jesus had to somehow take that infinite and eternal punishment in his own being in our place. That's why in Matthew 26, we read in the Garden of Gethsemane that the divine Son of God could say that he was overwhelmed to the point of death, that he felt like he was already being crushed. And in Matthew 27, he didn't cry out, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my head, my head. He could have. His body had nails and thorns penetrating it. He was slowly, excruciatingly dying of blood loss and asphyxiation. Yet instead he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the spiritual separation from God that was the ultimate agony. The cross, the ultimate example of God bringing good out of evil, will make you much humbler because you see how bad you are. But God actually did die to save you. And that makes you more confident when you see what Jesus was willing to do for you. Now, understanding the cry of Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the key to personal transformation. And it's the great key to the human work of forgiveness. Why? Because it gives us both humility and pride at the same time. Humility is the end of pride. Or sorry, humility and joy at the same time. Humility is the end of pride is what I was going to say. What that means is that it costs Jesus to love us. The cross humbles us out of our pride and self-centeredness because we see how much it cost Jesus to love us. The Son of God had to die. And it makes our heart hate sin 
because it led to his death, the one who loves us so and the one whom we love. And so, therefore, there are, there's no superiority complexes because we are sinners saved by grace. But there's also not just humility, there's joy. If humility is the end of pride, joy is the end of fear. Because the cross affirms us out of our inferiority, out of our self-pity. It forbids us to hate ourselves because he did it for us to make us free. There are no inferiority complexes because we're so loved. Do you know what the Apostle John, Jesus' good friend, wrote in 1 John 4, 18 through 20? He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not, who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. In the cry of Jesus on the cross, Christians have a humility and a joy that makes forgiveness possible. Do you see that? Have you looked at that on the cross? One note from the field of life and living life as a Christian before we continue on looking at the cross through song and through praise. Forgiveness is often granted before it's felt inside. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying, all my anger is gone. What you're saying when you forgive someone is, I am now going to treat you the way God treated me. I'm going to remember your sins no more. That doesn't mean I can't actually recall them. It means I'm not going to act on the basis of them. They're not controlling my life. They're not controlling the reality of my life. What is the controlling reality of my life? It's God's love and justice meeting on the cross for me. Because God is loving, friends, there is free, 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 free grace for us. But because he's holy... It was costly, infinitely costly grace. And when we know that we are the recipients of this kind of costly love and grace, where both love and justice were combined, when we know that Jesus Christ went to hell's heart for us and was loving and obedient on our behalf, that's it. That's what changes us. That's where tears come. That's where amazement comes. That's exhilaration, and that's galvanizing. So look at the cross. See the wonder of his love. Let me pray together with us. Father, we are so grateful for your love, matchless love. You've given us your only son. Jesus, you stayed. You endured that we might live. And so we praise you and we give you thanks. Thank you for your word. Enliven it to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. Draw us near to you, Lord. Speak to us. We ask in your name, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.